letter of Titus. And we had a pretty comprehensive review last week, or overview. And we're going to pick up today at Titus chapter 1. And we're going to finish out the rest of the chapter. We're going to go from 1.5 to 1.16. 1.5 to 1.16. Titus is with all the other key books in the New Testament. So if you run across the key book, you'll find it. So just by way of setting up this passage, the Apostle Paul and Titus have evangelized the island of Crete, which is a 65 by 135 mile island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a pretty famous island. And uh, in Bible times when Paul was traveling, they were on that, remember when Paul was on the prison ship and they were taking him from Jerusalem to Rome to be arrested? and stand before Caesar, uh, they were, uh, they, they faced a storm, you know, they got, they took off a little too late in the season, and one place in Acts it says that they decided to go along the coast of Crete so that the winds wouldn't shake the boat, and they were trying to make their destination, and so Paul has faced Caesar, he's been released from house arrest, and now he's doing evangelism, and one of the places that he goes is to Crete. And he and Titus evangelize the population, and they plant many churches. Uh, but before they can really establish these churches, and there's a lot of things that a church needs when it's first born, uh, Paul ends up going on another assignment, and he leaves Titus behind to take care of those things that still need to be done. And you see that in verse 5. Uh, Paul says to Titus, For this reason, and he's writing this in a letter, For this reason I left you in Crete. Uh, and here is the reason why. That you should set in order the things that are lacking. There's still many things that need to be done before these churches can uh, get on their feet and be on their own. So he leaves Titus there to do it. And then the rest of verse 5 says, And... Another reason I left you there, to appoint elders in every city. And uh, that means he's planted churches in every city. Every city that he's planted a church on Crete, Titus is to visit that city and he's to appoint elders for the church in that city. Now, we could say that Titus has a twofold mission. One, he needs to set things in order, and two, he needs to appoint elders, or. The word and there can be translated even. Uh, so it could mean, I've left you in Crete that you would set things in order, even, or that is, what I'm talking about is appoint elders in every city. So this is his main mission. Now, notice what else it says at the end of verse 5. As I commanded you. He's writing this letter to follow up to a command that he gave to Titus when he left him on Crete. So he wants to make sure that Titus gets on the ball and he does it. And the pronoun there, I, is emphasized in the Greek text. So Paul is using his authority. He says, get at it. I command you to do something. I'm your spiritual boss, in a sense. And you need to get at it and do this mission that I've left you to do. Now, he's to appoint these elders in every city, and now Paul gives the guidelines. 
which elders, which people should be appointed elders in the city? And look what he says. First of all, if a man's going to be appointed elder, he must be without fault. Look what he says there in verse 6. If a man is blameless, that carries the idea of being brought into a courtroom and being found innocent. He's been charged with something, but he is blameless. He's, he is without fault. And so he says, I want you to choose only people who, if they're brought on the carpet, uh, will be found innocent of any charge brought against them. That's the kind of person I'm hunting for. A person who could withstand any charge. In other words, a person who's above reproach, no matter what people say. Okay. And then he offers a word about the man's family life. Look what he says. The husband of one wife. In other words, he must have a good marital relationship. Okay? Must have a faithful marriage. And not only that, look what else. Having faithful children. Not perfect children, but believing children. Not pagans. Okay? Not pagans. He doesn't refer to the age here, and we're going to see as we go through this that he's actually, he doesn't mention the age of the children, but I don't think these are little children. I think these are children who are a little older, uh, maybe teenagers, and possibly even adults. Okay, So they're to be saved children. And here is how he describes them negatively. Look at this. Not accused of dis dissipation. Uh, notice if it were a five-year-old, would he be accused of dissipation? I don't think so. <laughs> Not accused of dissipation. So, this word dissipation literally means uh, not wasting your money. Not able to save your money. Literally, it means not able to save your money. It shouldn't be a person who's, who is charged. You shouldn't be able to charge this guy's children with Wasting their money on riotous living. Uh, like the prodigal son, remember? He went out and wasted his money on riotous living. So that is the child, the man's faithful, believing child, must never be in a situation where he or she could be accused of wasting your money on wild living like the prodigal son. So that's why I say, that can't be a, you know, an infant. can't be like Charlotte. Right. First of all, she couldn't be a believer, could she? So it has to be, you have, would have had to have reached at least the age of accountability to be a believer. And number two, you have to have some money <laughs> in order not to be charged with wasting your money. Does that make sense? And then look what else. And, or insubordination. Should not be able to be charged with insubordination. Obviously, uh, this is a rebellious child, a person whose life is out of control. Uh, so Paul's not talking about little children. He's talking about older children. And then what he does is he gives us an explanation. So that's, sort of, that's what it means to be without fault. Man has a good marriage, man has good kids, whatever age they are, once they've reached the age of accountability. Now he explains why it's important to choose that kind of person. Okay? Four. You see that next verse? Verse seven? Four. A bishop or an overseer, which means also an elder, must be blameless. It's not optional. It's a necessity. And then he says, must be blameless as a steward of God. 
Now, the word steward referred to a person who was a head of a household. He worked for a master, and he ran that person's household. In this case, the elder runs the household of God. And if he can't run his own household, how can he run the household of God? How can he, you know, take care of the church? So this man is working for a new master, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he must be blameless in his own marital and family affairs if he expects to rule the household of God, the church, well. Okay? Now, what he does, he then goes on to tell us what this looks like, what this kind of person would look like, a blameless person. And he gives us five negatives, and he gives us five positives about the kind of person that should be appointed. Okay. Each of the negatives is preceded with the word not. Now look at those. Let's look at the negative description. Not, verse 7, self-willed, not stubborn, not obstinate, not inflexible, not overbearing. In the Greek, it's just one word, but it means all these things. Uh, not a person who refuses to take orders. Not a person who can't see somebody else's point of view. You ever meet anybody like that? They're always right. They're stubborn. Doesn't matter what the truth is. Doesn't matter what the facts are. And if you're going to be leading God's church, you cannot be obstinate. You cannot be self-willed. You need to be God-willed, right? Now look at the next description. Not quick-tempered. Not a hothead. Yeah, not a hothead. Not a person who's given to violent outbursts. So if you see somebody as a pastor who's self-willed and give, is given to violent outbursts, and I've known a few of them, they're really not qualified to be an elder. And then the third in verse 7. Not given to wine. Now what does that mean? It means not given over to one. Uh, the scripture never says that you can't take a drink if you're an elder, but you're not to be given over or indulge in. It's the difference between a wine sipper and a wine bibber. <clears throat> so, there's a lot about drinking that Baptists and other evangelicals in America make make a big deal out of drinking, you know. But it's more of an American problem. It's not a biblical problem. It's not a European problem. It's just us for some reason because of the prohibition. All that mindset still hovers over America. Now I want you to know, I've never, I don't think I've ever taken a drink or drunk a beer since I've been saved. I just throw that out for you so you know that. You can't walk street the wine wine But you know something, if I did, it wouldn't matter. I just want you to know that. And I might just do it today. You better watch it. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> I would do it, but my wife won't let me. <laughs> my wife has never touched a sip of wine or a drink in her life. We once went to an Episcopal church for a Christmas Eve service, and they had a communion service. And when we went up, they served wine. She would not drink it. She made out she drunk it. But she didn't drink it. She didn't even put it to her lips. Can you believe that? I have to say that I did put it to my lips, but I didn't drink it. See, I, I smoked marijuana, but I didn't inhale. <laughs> One of those situations. 
Okay, everyone, where am I going with this? It's getting, getting totally out of hand. Uh, we need to move on. Okay. So now look at the next one, verse 7. Not violent. In this case, it means not a striker, not physically violent, not a person who comes to blows with other individuals. I know one uh, preacher that actually had a wrestling match down the middle of the aisle with somebody. Got the guy in a, in a Nolan Ryan type headlock and started hitting this guy. Now, that, that man shouldn't be in the pulpit. Next, finally in verse 7. Not greedy for money. There are some people who are in the ministry and they're in there for money. That's hard to believe, isn't it? One of the ways that you can tell, I mean, it's not just that it's a job, but one of the ways you can tell is if the person is called to another church. Are they called to a larger church or a smaller church? Yeah, that's, that's not, you know, an infallible thing, but I would like to see a pastor once in a while accept a call to a smaller church that pays a smaller salary, and then he would really know it's God's will. Well, you shouldn't say really, but, you know, that would be, well, it would be, be a shock. But you have to watch it, not greedy. You shouldn't have a greedy person because he's a steward, right? He's a steward of the household of God. He shouldn't be using that for his own means. Okay? So those are the negative characteristics. Now look at the six positive characteristics. Look at verse 8. But, by contrast, the person should be hospitable. And in Bible times, this meant that you uh, lodged traveling preachers. He should open his house up to traveling evangelists and prophets and preachers and whatever were traveling in those days. Uh, the word means a lover of strangers. And this is really important because Jesus says, I was a stranger. And he didn't take me in. Remember? And he commends those when he says, I was a stranger and you took me in. So the elder should be somebody who takes in uh, traveling preachers and just doesn't put them up necessarily in the holiday or whatever of the first century. Now look at verse 8. Second characteristic. A lover, not only of strangers, but a lover of what is good. Good what? Good things, good people, you know, good activities, good words. He's a virtuous person. Loves good things. Not a nuanced person. Sober-minded. Clear thinker, next. Serious, discreet. Uh, you know, doesn't just blab, you know. He has, he has mastery over his mind. Sober mind. This is your body can be sober, your mind can be sober. Now look at next in verse 8. Just, that means upright, fair, you know, uh, in his dealings with people. Uh, not somebody who will be influenced by friendships because there are going to be decisions that have to be made. He needs to be just in his decision making. Holy, that means in his devotion toward God. He needs to be a pious person. A pious person. He's devoted to people. He's devoted to God. And then it goes on and says in verse 8, finally, self-controlled, uh, which means he's disciplined. Disciplined in every way. Disciplined in his thought life, disciplined in his body, disciplined, not a slob, you know, not a person who's got all these addictions and he's out of control. It's a person who is self-controlled, which is one of the fruits of the Spirit, isn't it? That means we should all be self-controlled. But you definitely must be in control in order to be a pastor or an elder or an overseer. And then look in verse 9. 
Here's how he accomplishes that. Holding fast to the faithful word, that's the gospel, as he has been taught. His lifestyle comes in conformity with this word, this faithful word of the gospel. So he, is a, he has a life that is gospel-centered and he lives according to the principles of the word of God. And now we come to a purpose statement in verse 9. That, you see that? Right in the middle of the verse. Holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught that, so that, in order that, he, that is the elder, may be able by sound doctrine to exhort and convict those who contradict. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? First of all, notice he is to be faultless blameless with these characteristics word centered his life his lifestyle should be based on following the principles of this word so that when it comes time so that when it comes time he will be able you see that word he'll be able by sound doctrine now sound doctrine does is not what you think it is it doesn't mean the doctrine of the virgin birth doctrine of the second coming it's not that kind of doctrine it just means sound teaching. In this case, it means ethical teaching. That he might ethically teach by using ethical teaching both to exhort, that means to charge, and second of all, to convict who? Those who contradict. Those who are the troublemakers in this church. Those who oppose the gospel. His life must be a model Christian life based on the word, so that he is able to stand up and oppose those unethical people in the church. And they can't point the finger and say, well, you knew the same thing. You're at fault just as much as I am. So he wouldn't be able to charge and convict these people of their godless living unless he were living a different lifestyle. It's based on the word. That is why the pastor or the elder should be living above reproach. So that when he has to deal with people who contradict the faithful word in their lives and in their speech, he can do it honestly because charges can't be brought against him in like manner. Does that make sense? That's the argument that Paul is making here. Now he elaborates on it in verse 10. Why is that needed? Because, look what he says in verse 10, there are many insubordinate. Not a few spread out in these churches. Not some. How many? A lot. There's a lot of insubordinate people who don't live according to the word of God. He describes them as idle talkers. All they do is prattle, blab, gossip, speak nonsense, never have a serious thought in their, in their life, just go around spreading idle talk, gossip. And then second of all, he says in verse 10, they are deceivers. In this talk, they are leading people astray. They deceive. That's the difference between truth 
truth and deception. These people are not speaking the truth. Their life isn't based on the truth. And they are deceivers. That's a mark of Satan. He was the first deceiver. And then he says this at the end of verse 10. He says this. Especially those of the circumcision. These troublemakers in the churches on Crete are mainly Jewish troublemakers. Now notice it says especially. It doesn't say exclusively, does it? There are some Gentile church members that are causing trouble too. But the main problem that Titus is going to have to deal with is these Judaizers, these people who are trying to get the new believers to be circumcised, keep all the ceremonial Jewish laws of the Old Testament, and that's the trouble that they're causing. And he says, these are the people that you elders... These are the people, Paul says, that the elders are going to have to deal with once they are put in positions of authority. And then he says this in verse 11, which is very interesting. Whose mouths must be stopped. We can't allow this to go on. This idle talk and this deception. Can't go on any longer. They must be silenced. Good word is muzzled. You got a dog that barks all the time? You got a dog that bites all the time? Guess what you do? Put that muzzle on him, he won't bark and he won't bite. He says, these people have to be muzzled. And they need to be silenced. They need to be stopped. That is the reason for appointing the elders. By having these people in authority, they can take control of God's household, manage God's household, and make sure things are done right. They themselves will be the preachers of the word, and these other people will have to be silenced. That's the purpose for appointing the elders. Now, look what he says about these people. It's very interesting what they do. Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped. Notice it's a necessity. It's not an option. Who subvert whole households. Do you see that? That's why they have to be stopped. It's not talking about family houses. Not the house next door. It's talking about the household of God. They are subverting entire churches. Remember the church met in homes. And he's saying these idle talkers, these deceivers are subverting whole households. And how do they do it? In verse 11, teaching things they ought not. They do it through their false teaching. And why do they do it? For the sake of dishonest gain. They do it for money. They're religious mercenaries. Uh, they profit off the church. So they teach this false teaching and they get themselves entrenched for the sake of dishonest gain. Um, <clears throat> They use the church for their benefit. That's why the elders who are appointed must not be greedy for money. So he's making a contrast between those who are legitimate leaders, elders who are appointed, not greedy for money, and these guys who have sort of taken over churches before it's organized, and they are greedy for money. So he's making that charge. The uh, Bible talks a lot about preachers and money. 
And we won't get into that, but you know that that's still a problem in churches today. And then to support that these people are dishonest and these people are deceptive, he says in verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars. Paul ends up saying, and the proof that I'm right when I'm saying about these deceivers is that even their own people say they're liars. And he's quoting from a, from a philosopher in the 7th century B.C. who is a Cretan, and he's describing the Cretan people, and he says, you know something? They're all liars. Now, is every single one of them a liar? Well, no, but it's a characteristic of the people of Crete as a whole. It would be like me saying, gypsies are thieves. Are they? You ever met one who wasn't? Well, there is a revival going on amongst gypsies, and some of them are getting saved. I don't know if they're like Zacchaeus and returning fourfold or not. But if I said, gypsies are thieves, you know what I'm saying, right? Latins are red-hot lovers. Nah. Yeah, I figured I'd throw that one out. You say you're getting the point. Okay? And Paul's using one of their own people to sort of support his argument. And uh, he says not only are they liars, in verse 12, he says they are evil beasts. Uh, they are like animals who devour, devour those who are helpless. And the helpless would be the church members as they're devouring. And then he says this in verse 12, and this is really important. It's missed, I think. They are lazy gluttons. I'm convinced that this is a reference to the Lord's Supper. Because remember, in the, in the first century, they actually ate a meal, didn't they, every Sunday? And these are people who are coming in, and guess what? They don't do a day's work when it's time for the Lord's Supper and everybody brings food. Guess what? They don't bring anything. See? And they are, they just, they feast on you. See? And this is why the church serves them and they don't church serve the church. They're lazy gluttons. They're like leeches, you know, contributing nothing. Uh, but they are getting fat, you know, off the church. And you'll see that this is, I think that this whole section really is re related in some way to the eating of a full meal as the Lord's Supper. He says, this testimony is true. First of all. What I'm telling you is the truth and what this guy, the philosopher, said about the Cretans are true. Well, so what, Paul? Now what do you want me to do? Well, look what he said in verse 13. Therefore, here's what I want you to do, Titus. Rebuke them sharply. Now, back in verse 9, he said, once the elders are appointed, and you see that at the end of verse 9, the elders are to exhort and convict those who contradict. But until that point, guess who has to do the rebuking? Titus has to do the rebuking. He says, I want you to go to these churches, find these people, search them out, and I want you to rebuke them. And he says, do it sharply. Don't allow anybody to say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, when you get finished, they'll know exactly what you mean. In other words, shut up, zip it, don't say another word. That's what you're supposed to say to those people. It's not very nice, is it? Well, Paul wasn't always a nice guy. He did things like that. And this is what he tells Titus to do. Titus is his troubleshooter. You know? There are troublemakers in the church, 
and Titus is left there as a troubleshooter to take care of the mess. Tell them to zip it. That's my translation. Verse 13. Why? What's the purpose? That they may be sound in the faith. I'm doing that not to condemn these people. I don't want you to tell them to zip it, to condemn these people. I am trying to restore these people to the faith. See what he says there? That they, that's the troublemakers, may be sound in the faith. Paul has an evangelistic goal here. Now these are church members. See? But they're not in the faith. And Paul is trying to return them to the soundness of the faith. The gospel that he preached when they heard the first time, they need to come back to that gospel, not pervert the gospel. If Titus doesn't take this action, then these people will continue to gain control of the church and it will have devastating results on the church. In fact, every household will be subverted. So you can see why this is a very important thing. Does that make sense to you? So then look at verse 14. That they might be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables. And this is what they're doing. They are preaching all these legends, Jewish legends, not based on truth. And look what else. Not giving heed to commandments of men who turn from the truth. And that's what these false teachers are doing. They are following man-made rules regarding food and regarding other things. And uh, Paul says you need to get them back on track. Right, it's going to be devastating. So now he summarizes. And this is very interesting, verse 15. It's sort of like, when you read this verse, it just seems like he just drops this in the middle and it doesn't even make sense why he puts it in here. But look what he says. To the pure, all things are pure. Now what in the world does that mean? Right in the middle, he just drops that in there. To the pure, all things are pure. Now listen carefully. He's talking about purity laws. He's talking about clean and unclean food. See, these guys were going around and they were saying, you can't eat that, that's impure. You can't eat crab, you can't eat shrimp, you can't eat this, you can't eat that, that's not kosher. You have to wash your hands if you eat without your hands being pure. You can't do that. And these Judaizers are trying to get all these people in the church to follow all these Purity laws based on Judaism and man-made interpretation. And Paul says, wait a second. And look, and that's what you do at the Lord's Supper. You eat and you drink certain things, don't you? And these guys are saying, just like they did over in Galatians, Galatians 2. Remember the Judaizers who came to Antioch? Paul was eating meals with Gentiles. He was eating ham hocks and, you know shrimp and using all this quote unclean stuff. Peter showed up and he said, Peter, you ought to try these crab cakes. And Peter said, man, these are good. Well, I like that. Of course Peter would do that. Peter knew he could eat anything he wanted. How did he know that? Ah, because he was on the roof of Joppa. He went into a trance and he saw this great big sheep come down with clean and unclean animals and God said, eat it. Eat that Catfish. It doesn't have scales. That scavenger. Peter said, Not so, Lord. He even argues with God when he's having a vision. He said, Not so, Lord. 
I've never eaten anything unclean. God said, but I have made what? Clean, don't you call unclean. Say, to those who are pure, everything's pure. And this is what's happening. These guys have come in. They've sort of taken over the Lord's Supper. They're saying, you can't have that. You can't drink that. He says, wait a second. When you're free in Christ, you're free in peace. If you're pure of heart, it doesn't matter what you Everything is pure. Does that make sense? You see how it all fits in the Lord's Supper and eating and drinking and things like that? If you have a pure heart, you won't be defiled. It's not that which goes in that defiles, is it? Okay. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, like these Judaizers, nothing is pure. But even their minds and their consciences are defiled. He's talking about these. And these are Jewish church members. See, they're a church member. These aren't neighbors. These are church members. And uh, But he calls them defiled people in verse 15. He calls them unbelieving people. So even though they, they're church members, they're really unbelievers. And look what he says in verse 16. Oh, they profess to know God. The word confession. They confess Christ. Yeah, when they heard the gospel, they were baptized and confessed Christ. They seemed to start off making the right, responding to the gospel and making the right confession, but look what he says in verse 16. But in works and deeds, they what? Deny him. Their acts, their lifestyle, what they're teaching contradicts their original profession. There's no fruit in their life. They deny him, and he calls them, because he describes them this way, being abominable. They're despicable. These people are despicable. Church members who profess Christ, and then they're trying to deceive you. They're despicable. They're repulsive. They are disgusting people. Paul really lets them have it. That's why you need to rebuke these people. You don't want the whole church to become like that, do you? Second of all, he says in verse 16, they are disobedient. See, they don't follow rules. They don't follow the truth. They rebel against the gospel of grace. And finally, he says they're disqualified. They're unfit for every good work. Uh, they don't pass the test. What they're doing, their works don't pass the test as being called a good work. What they're doing is just the opposite. It's a bad work. It's a counterfeit work. They are professing Christ, but they are all counterfeiters. So, Titus has a big job on his hands. Now, when you look at this, you see a path for choosing elders. And this is what our churches try to do. But I want you to notice something. I'll show you how things have changed. In this case, notice that the elders are appointed. Wow, Episcopal's appointed. <laughs> you know, Methodist's appointed. What do we do? We call. But I will say this. I'm not saying there's one system that's right or wrong. But I will say in the first century church, in a new church plant, guess how the elder was chosen? He was appointed in the first century. Now, maybe in the second century, as time goes on, that doesn't work. But then I want you to notice also this. Notice where they were chosen from. They were chosen from within the church. Not outside. They said, well, there's a pastor over in Fort Worth. We can hire him away. 
thing. They chose they they chose from within the church. They raised those persons up to others. That's how you could know whether the person was self-willed or not given the wine or not violent or not whatever. You can't know that when somebody lives a thousand miles away and you're calling them to be your pastor. That's why so many churches call pastors and say, we believe this is God's will. And two years later, he's gone. Because they didn't know who they were bringing in. See, Titus knows the people in the church. He knows who they are. And he is examining them. You can't examine a person's lifestyle unless you know their lifestyle. So that's just a couple of things. There's an intimacy involved there. Then we also see an example, I think, here of church discipline. This is what you're supposed to do when people get out of order. You're to confront error. And we know Jesus gives a pattern, a very detailed pattern, but ultimately involves confronting the error to bring them to the point of repentance that they may return to the sound faith, verse 13, and be restored. And if not, then what do you do? put them out of the church, don't you? Most churches do not practice church discipline. It's no longer part of the church. And when you put them out of the church, guess what that meant? Now listen carefully. It meant they didn't get to eat a meal on Sunday night. And that meant something in a church where the average person was a peasant poor person who made one cent a day that was just enough to feed himself and take care of his lodging. If it rained, if he was a field worker and it rained like today, guess what? He didn't get taken. When you became a Christian, you got a, basically a meal. And when you were put outside the church, you didn't get a meal. And that could be the difference between life and death. So church discipline was a very costly matter. So in the area of church discipline, Paul says, you tell those people to shut up, shape up, or shit out. But you're not doing it the way Street just did it with such vindictiveness. You did it to the point of restoring to the fellowship. Next week we'll talk about uh, more uh, instructions for Titus as he speaks, as, uh, as Paul gives him instructions on how to handle this church problem. So we'll pick up there. Lord, I thank you that, that you have been gracious to us. That even when we make mistakes and we misspeak, we teach something that's false, maybe inadvertently. Uh, that you have shown us the truth. You've opened their eyes. You've restored us to a right relationship with you and the church. Help us, Lord, to take some of these lessons to heart. Help us to realize that our churches today are no better off than the churches in New Testament times. There's problems in every church. And it's important that we stay on top of the problems. Help those of us who have a little bit of leadership responsibility to realize that we are stewards. We're not owners of the household of God, the church, but we're stewards. Help us to be good managers. Help us to serve you realizing that in the end, our reward is in the kingdom of God and not necessarily here on earth.
Praise me.